0: Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar.
1: Hello and welcome to Silmarillion Seminar 16, in which we discuss Chapter 15 of the Quintus Silmarillion of the Noldor in Beleriand. This is Laura Burkoltz, one of the Silmarillionaires, and you may also know me from the Secrets of Middle-earth podcast on sqpn.com. In today's episode, we discuss disappearing elves, ignoring good advice, the building of the elven strongholds Gondolin and Nargothrond, and we say some not very nice things about Galadriel and Cirdan. I hope you enjoy the episode.
0: Okay. Good evening, everybody. I know we're missing a few people tonight, uh, b- uh, but uh, we'll have to, you know, struggle through as we can here. Okay, so I would like to start the sort of the primary topics that I definitely want to make sure we hit on um, are things pretty much uh, people have already raised them uh, somewhat here in our text queue. Um, that is certainly the founding of Gondolin and Olmo's connection with that, and then also uh, the whole Thingol and the Noldor issue, and then I would love to get back to talking about. Uh, <laughs> goadrial <laughs> though probably uh with a little bit more politeness than dave is typing about it right now so um but anyway let's start let's start with um actually uh, mike started with a a simple question about uh, uh thorondor the king of the eagles um and uh this is uh his name means guess what King of the Eagles. Uh, you can tell he's the King of the Eagles because that's his name. Um, uh, Thoron uh, in Sindar in uh, Sindarin means um, means eagle. Uh, so uh, Thorondor, uh, we are told, just means the King of the lord of the Eagles. Um, he was originally called Sorontor um, in the Book of Oz Tales. Uh, that's because that was his uh, that seemed to be his name or the the that eagle element in the name uh in Quenya rather than Cinderin. Um but anyway. Uh so yes, Thorondor is the king of the Eagles. And uh, he is uh he's kind of a favorite of mine. He's a small character, but uh he is uh uh he's 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 pretty cool. I'm a big fan of uh of Thorondor the Eagle. Um uh, okay, uh let's see. Um let's Let's see, let's go on to the foundation of Gondolin. Um, So, let's see, uh, John, you want to start this off?
2: Yes, Um, I wanted to first touch upon the um, whole foundation from uh, the starting at Nevrast. I found it curious that um, Turgon, especially, would settle first by uh, a place which is similar to Blarion, we're told, but yet quite different in its climate. It's closer to the sea. And I wanted to touch also upon Ulmo, because, of course, we know Ulmo's involvement is quite great, as we're informed and it seems to me as though he has some premonition of Tour and is coming because he tells um, Torugan to leave um, his harbukh and his helm along with his sword to a certain stature if I believe. I don't know if this is exactly due to um, the song of the Ainur, the vision of the Ainur, or whether it's just Uma going on a hunch, but you know, I'd like your input on that as well. Also, with that, in Gondolin itself, I believe you touched on this earlier in your other podcasts, how it's a replica of basically Tyrion upon Tuna. We have, you know, two trees similar to Laurelin and to Lepedion. I forget the exact names, but, you know... I find it very funny, and yet quite appropriate that basically the exiles here would try to have a, a piece of home here in the, the Great Lands, Middle Earth. With that, I'm sorry for ranting on here. I wish to um, also cover how Ulmo calls um, basically Tordogon City, which was previously previously named, I believe, uh, Andolunde, Gondolin, first. I don't know whether Gondolin was a name first advised by Ulmo or not, so that
3: is my wonderful little treatise on the history of Gondolin and, and it's founding
0: yeah good that's a, a, a bunch of uh, a bunch of great things see this week I had the prudence uh, actually to be uh, taking notes for myself uh, as you were speaking so that I wouldn't forget to address to say half the things that you that your comment raised as I usually do um, first uh Your comment on Ulmo and his anticipation of the coming of Tuor later on. Um, Yes, that is made very explicit later on. As you mentioned, um, though it is not stated explicitly here um, in this version of it. We're told that uh, uh, Ulmo tells Turgon to leave armor and a sword uh, behind in Vinyamar. And this is the sign by which he will know uh the messenger that Omo is going to send Omo will send him a messenger and uh, and and this you know he 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 will know that it is Omo's messenger because he's gonna wear this armor that turgen is leaving behind um and it is mentioned later that uh it, Omo gives him like the exact measurements like you know this is this is this is the size of armor you should make he knows exactly what tour wind tour is gonna come and you know wh- what he looks like and exactly um exactly what his um what his it just, i mean he he, he 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 has very specific foresight of this, um not just a a rough i think that somebody's going to come here later on um, this is i think an interesting moment uh you know as you mentioned uh John this seems to be um back to Ulmo remembering the music and being able to anticipate what 's going to happen. This is one of the clearest instances i think that we have of the valar plainly knowing in some detail the future before it's going to happen now that's not to say that ulmo knows absolutely everything here um and that he can you know that he basically has the whole book in advance prior to uh prior to all of these events happening but there are some things at least that he is anticipating very clearly and very directly um so i think that that's uh um I, I do think that this is an interesting moment it's it's not to say i think i mean I don't think that we can safely extrapolate from this to say well since um since Olmo obviously knows about tour and knows exactly about tour um that therefore we can assume that all of the you know the, the valor in general know all about all of the other things that are going to be happening um but but it clearly it clearly does happen. We do see this kind of uh very specific anticipation uh Jason, you wanted to add to this? Yes, what you're just saying about this being one of the few times that the Valar have clear foresight of something that's going to happen, it seems to raise the issue, what good does it do? Because, of course, in the end, Turgon does exactly the opposite of what Olmo's counseling him to do. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. And it is, uh, I, I mean, I, that is uh, a good thing to remember. Um, all and, and sort of to speak... N- not only to uh, sort of as this this scene as, as a piece of evidence for the power, the nature, and the limitations of the powers of the Valar, but also of their choices as well. Um, Olmo on the one hand, is intervening certainly more directly than we see any of the other Valar doing here. He's taking a direct hand... Uh, in guiding and protecting i mean he even he does more it seems than is even explicitly said uh he is protecting them as they're as they're going through you know that that we've got this migration of an entire people um and yet nobody sees any of them going. They they manage to keep this mass migration a complete secret when they go and where they go to. Um and uh, it is suggested that it is Olmo who protects them. His power is in the river Syrian, uh, and as they travel through the Vale of Syrian they, you know, and therefore end thus into into the Vale, they are they are they are protected and, and guided. Um but Nevertheless, although he's being very direct, although he's intervening in these ways, although he is taking a direct hand and he's guiding the establishment of Gondolin and the establishment of Nargothrond, he is not doing anything directly. And <laughs> Jason, as you say, the the thing he most directly does—that is his warning and guidance—ultimately uh, is going to be is going to be disregarded. Um, did you want to add something else, Jason?
4: I guess you could argue that
0: by planting the thought in Turgon's mind to go seek out the veil that he is assisting in the eventual salvation of the Noldor, whatever remains of the Noldor by the end of the story. But um, I I did think it was interesting that, as you say, when he's most direct about warning them against a specific course of action, love not too well to work of your own hands, that that's the part that gets left aside. And so whatever benefit comes out of that is more uh, indirect, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I mean, and and, and that, I would say, is actually an uh, even... I mean, this is sort of something that I was not exactly overlooking there. Uh, not exactly overlooking, but um, uh, he he's not only anticipating Tuor very specifically, he's also somewhat less concretely anticipating Earendil. Um, "'Remember that the true hope of the Noldor lieth in the west and cometh from the sea.' he he knows what's going to happen it seems um and he is uh as, so as i said he's he's not as specifically foretelling arendo as he is foretelling tour um but yeah he 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 seems he seems to know the plan i don't think that we can say or that 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 we're supposed to understand here that Although he sees the arrival of Tuor, you know, there's this limitation of his vision, you know, he sees the arrival of Tuor, but he doesn't see the fact that Turgon's not gonna listen. Um, I think he you know, d I, I, I don't see any reason to think that he doesn't foresee that and yet still does what he does. Even Olmo, who is plainly not neglecting Middle Earth and plainly not abandoning it, is still not taking a really forceful hand and is still really letting them do their own thing and make their own choices. Uh, Dave, go ahead.
5: Um I have two questions. the first is um to what extent or what is the extent of Omo's knowledge so what I'm wondering is what is he actually is he actually anticipating tour or is it more sort of a limited knowledge? He knows that he's supposed to do this. Uh, he's anticipating someone. Someone will come and get it. Or does he? Do you think he specifically anticipates the, a specific individual? And then the second question is: What is the source of his knowledge? Is this something that um, all the Valar know? Is this something that uh, Mandos whispered to him, sort of prodded of him, "Hey, you should go do this"? Or uh, are we supposed to to see the sort of uh, are we see, supposed to see the connection between Ulmo as sort of the the water guy and the connection between the water and the music, and the music being sort of the narrative of history?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think... Okay. I think that we are supposed to see this as a pretty direct foreseeing. Um, that is, with Tour, he might perhaps not... Um, let's see. I think that... Okay I mean one could say he does know specifics about who's going to come does that necessarily mean he knows the whole story of Tuor leading up to it I don't know I mean the suggestion I think is yes I mean we're like uh, he knows like you know his height weight and inseam you know so he he's uh his his vision of who is to come is pretty clear and when we get to the story of Tuor eventually we'll see that Olmo uh you know, takes a hand in guiding to or specifically. Um so I mean I think the evidence that we have points to the fact that he does anticipate that pretty directly. As for the source of his information, we're not told that he gets it from anywhere else but himself. And he does have access to this it seems. I mean remember um remember that moment uh with uh Manway and Yavana when they're talking about the Ents and the Eagles um and you know Manway does his thing where he like gets back in touch with the with the music and 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 sort of the vision is unfolded again in front of him and stuff. Um, that I mean, we we never see Olmo doing something like that. But remember that Olmo is nearly Manway's peer, and so the 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 kind of vision, the kind of role that he plays, he seems to he seems to certainly be capable um of doing that on his own. Um and I don't and, and because he is one of the greatest of all of the Valar, I don't think that we need necessarily assume that all of the other Valar would have exactly that same insight. Um but it seems that he does. And so I mean I think Olmo is kind of is, is really interesting because you know, he's like the representative Valar here, you know, and and I don't think, although we're told that he's, you know, he's kind of a loner, and he doesn't hang out with the other Valar all the time, and he kind of goes his own way, he is in really close friendship with Manwe, and I don't think there's any reason to think of him as actually really breaking ranks with um with the rest of the Valar here, and doing the, doing things that they wouldn't do or don't approve of. Uh, I, I think that would be, it seems to me that would be kind of taking things a little too far with him. Um so i am more comfortable sort of seeing him as basically he has taken on the role of being the valar who is uh sort of paying attention the one who is uh um the one who is working on behalf of people but again he's not just being their advocate he's not just helping them out he's guiding them he's advising them but he's still Pursuing the same general plan that Manwe pursued when Feanor was speechifying back in Valinor—that is, okay, like I, this is a terrible idea, and I'm going to show up and I'm going to tell you on a couple of different occasions that this is a really, really bad idea. But you guys want to do it, we'll let you go. Um, you guys want to, you know, start killing each other, we'll let you do that. You're not going to like what's going to happen if you do that, but uh, you know, okay, there you go. And uh, you know, in the curse of Mandos, and then now, you know, I, I will warn you. But uh, you know, in the end, Turgon, you're going to make your own choice. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's uh, that's that seems to be um, how uh, how how Olmo's working there. Uh, Jordan, you had a you had a thought about uh, about Olmo here.
6: Uh yeah, sort of the pecking order of the Valar, because at a certain point, Olmo says to Turgon like. You're still under the curse of Mandos, and I can't do anything about that. So, I mean, I understand them not wanting to, you know, step on the other Valar's toes. But if he really wanted to, why couldn't he lift the curse on Turgon specifically?
0: Yeah, I I, I think that's a good question, and I don't think that, I don't think that this is a question of him not being able to, um, that it, he doesn't he doesn't want to. I mean, he is. Um, he is not breaking ranks. He is not um he has no interest in in deviating from this. Remember that moment earlier before, um, when Tolkas, for instance, uh did not want to give mercy to Melkor. You know, when Melkor makes his speech and, you know, Nien is like, Yes, please and Manway says, Oh, okay, I think this'll be great Um there are those including Tolkas who don't like it and who don't agree with that choice but um but they don't make any trouble and they don't uh they don't oppose it and they don't work against it at all um and you know what we, we we're we told is that you know those who would defend authority against rebellion must not themselves rebel um they're not going to break ranks. Uh, with Manway, they're gonna they're going to submit to his decision and his authority because he's 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 the vice region of, of Iluvatar here uh, on in Arda, um, and so, and I think that we can see Omo doing that. I mean, he's not gonna be like behind you know what, what I, I was gonna about to say behind the backs of the other Valar as if he's even behind their backs, but um, he's not gonna be going around you know sneaking around and saying hey like let's hope Manway's not watching and I'll I'll like or you know or or Mandos, who is the Doomsman of the Valor. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work against them. He's not gonna work against them. I don't think that this is a situation. Um, in my, uh, in one of my classes, I've been doing, um, I've been doing Ovid's Metamorphoses, and and one of the things that we've been talking about is the way in which uh, the Greek and Roman gods seem unable to undo a thing that another god has done. Um, right. So when, for instance. Uh, Jupiter and Juno are having their dispute and they call upon Tiresias to judge uh, which one is uh, which one is right and which one is wrong and Tiresias decides in favor of Jupiter and against Juno Juno gets mad and strikes him blind uh Jupiter who wants to reward him can't unblind, I mean, he can't make him see again, because Juno has made him blind, and he can't undo that. So what he does is he gives him the gift of prophecy, like, you're going to be blind, but you're going to be a prophet, too. Um, and I don't think that that's the kind of situation that we're seeing here. I don't think that's how it works among the Valar. like, oh, golly, I wish I could, I wish I could undo that, I, I really, like, you know, I, 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 I totally disagree with what Mandos did, I think you guys are getting a bum rap, but unfortunately my hands are tied. Uh, I think this is he's in agreement. You know, he is in he's he he is still, I think, although he is independent and and on his own to some extent. I think he's still pretty much, you know, shoulder, you know, uh, uh shoulder to shoulder with the other with the other Valar in his actions here. That's anyway, that's how I take him and and uh uh and, and so therefore that's why I think you know he's sort of reminding him of the curse of Mandos and this is how it's going to be. It's sort of in in that um in the context of, uh, um, in in the context of his advice, you know, the the shadow of Mandos lies on you. Like you are also under Mandos' curse. Don't forget about that, because and I think in part that is a is like a subset of his advice: not to love too well the work of his own hands. Right? Don't get so caught up in your little hidden wonderland uh, of Gondolin in there. Totally cut off from the rest of the world, geographically separated from everybody, you might think that you've made a little paradise here. You might think that you've achieved a kind of perfection. You might think that you know nothing can get to you, and that uh, that that nothing could go wrong with you. Um, but you know what? Don't forget, it's not true. Um, the shadow of Mando's lies on you also. Um, so anyway, that's that's how I that's how I take Olmo here, and I think that it's. Um, uh, but as is, but I do think that he is, um, he is to me one of the most interesting of the Valar, one of the most kind of puzzling. Everybody else, I f- feel like is a little bit easier to peg. Olmo is uh, is I think really fascinating. Um, okay, uh, actually, and I want to I want to go back see again. This is why I'm really glad that I took notes when John was talking today because I would totally have forgotten uh, the other point that he made that I really wanted to get back to, which is. Uh, the the way in which Gondolin is made in the image of of Tyrion upon Tuna and I think that um, this is a really interesting thing and it's one of the things that really sets Gondolin apart from really everything else. Um, T- uh, Turgon is the one who you know as uh, as 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 John I think you said he 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 brings you know he makes like a little piece of home right this is this is the only one of the elf kingdoms which is explicitly hearkening back. To Valinor, everybody else has kind of turned their backs on Valinor, and and they are, you know, they are moving forward. They are focusing on other things. Um, and you know, even Gondolin, or sorry, not Gondolin, even Nargothrond, is modeled. We're told, um, not after anything in Valinor, but after Menegroth. Uh, you know, he sees, he sees Thingol's realm, Finrod does, and says, "Hey, this is great." You know, I. I I love this idea and Thingol tells him hey you know I think there's uh, I've heard there's some pretty sweet caves uh, there by the river Narog and um and so so Finrod sets it up um but here in Gondolin and really in Gondolin alone we see this you know the primary focus of Gondolin is that it is a memorial it is a memorial of Elven Tirion and not just a memorial, but a recreation. There's a memorial of the trees. These are not like the Silmarils in the sense that they are, you know, there's no, there's no, elu- they don't, they don't light up. They're, 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 they're trees of gold and silver. They're just memorials of the trees. But Gondolin itself is at least potentially more than just a memorial. Of Tyrion, it is a memorial, but it's but it's also it is a thing which actually could and might, and in Turgon's mind, it seems eventually will rival or replace Tyrion upon Túna. Um, so I think that that's, um, it's part of the it's it's part of what Olmo is talking about: love not too well the works of your own hands. Um, um, but I think it's interesting uh, to connect th- uh, Turgon's. Turgon's construction of Gondolin and this kind of backward-facing, um, th- the kind of backward-facing that is back towards Valinor, facing nature of um, of Gondolin. Um, I, I think it's interesting to connect that with one of the details that we're told about Finrod. You know, Finrod and Turgon are these two that are singled out uh, by Omo uh, to set up these secret realms with the desire of of preserving as long as possible. Uh, the Noldor race against the onslaught of Morgoth, which Olmo certainly sees coming, uh, even if some of uh, some of the others, including Fingolfin, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, uh, don't really see coming or don't anticipate sufficiently. But anyway, so Finrod and Turgon are connected by this, by the dreams and visions that they're given by Olmo. And there's this other detail that connects them. Finrod, we were told, remember when we get the description of the making of the Nauglamir, um, the the necklace of the dwarves uh, that that Finrod has made by the dwarves um, by all the gems that he brought, not all of them, but but by by these gems that he brought out of Valinor, and we're told that Finrod brought more with him. He brought more treasures with him out of Valinor than any of the other of the princes of the Noldor. Um, so it seems to be another thing that connects Finrod and Turgon, and that is both of them. Are the two that are sort of looking backwards? Finrod through the stuff that he brought. He brought more mementos with him, and then Turgon dedicates himself to building a big old memento uh, of Valinor. And it seems not a coincidence, therefore, that it's these two guys—the two guys who are sort of most pro Valinor, most most remembering of Valinor—that um, uh, they—it's th- that these are the guys who um, whom whom Omo comes to. Um, and so I, as I said, I don't think that that's, that that's a coincidence. Dave, go ahead.
5: You're, you're sort of already touching on this. I was going to ask, is the looking back thing, um, uh, a good thing? Because I, I feel like in, in in sort of modern society, we tend to have this attitude that looking back, um, sort of, you know, living in the past, as it were, is a negative thing, that people should look forward, move on, that sort of thing. And certainly a lot of the other Noldor have kind of moved on, uh, uh, and they're focusing on, you know, Middle Earth and conquering new realms and all that. And I wonder if uh, – so I wonder, is the looking back – the this sort of wist you know almost subconscious wistfulness for um uh valinor a good thing or a bad thing or maybe it's sort of maybe it's both maybe it's both good and bad it has good and bad features
0: yeah i i do think so um that it's not just it's certainly not purely bad i mean i think there's there's no question about that and and you know what you were bringing up first the Um, you know, sort of moving forward as opposed to looking back. Um, That's a very human perspective uh, that is uh, human as opposed to elvish. And the the elves, um, they look back a lot. They look back all the time. Um, Remember the conversation that Gimli and Legolas have in The Lord of the Rings about memory and and elven memory and, you know, Gimli saying that he has heard that for elves uh, memory is more like to the waking world than than like to a dream. So, I mean, he, um, you know, the elves increasingly as time goes on memory is all they have um and uh they so so memory clearly not a bad thing memorializing clearly not a bad thing um and uh but see it's interesting when what omo cautions turgon about um, about loving too well the work of his own hands. And we were quoting this already, you know, in anticipation back when we were talking about Feanor. And this is, I think, one obvious parallel to bring up here with Turgon, is that um, that phrase, love not too well the work of your own hands, we have, of course, seen the huge example of this already, which is Feanor and the Silmarils. And so in in a sense, um, Gondolin is like Turgon's Silmaril. And... You know, the fact that we have the tree memorials and the Tyrian memorial there, just as, well, not just as, but kind of similar to Fëanor's desire to preserve the light of the trees in his gems, um, there was a kind of a memorial aspect to uh to feanor's as well now that too was different because it wasn't it's you know they, they the trees weren't dead and no one was anticipating that so it's not a look back at something that is lost and the trees have been lost uh for good and Tyrion upon tuna has been lost to Turgon because he's exiled now um he's exiled by his choice to go and to follow feanor um so, so therefore, and you can see sort of the direction of the memorializing is very different from um, uh, from from Feanor's making of 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 the Silmarils. Dave, go ahead.
5: Yeah, I think it's good in the sense that, I mean, there has to be something about the fact that that these two guys happen to be sort of the last two of the Noldor, at least, to fall. Although. That could be related to the fact that they went and dug themselves holes and built giant fortresses and and also chose places that weren't in the immediate vicinity of um, Morgoth and, and his people. But uh, I also wonder if there's more to it than that, that these two guys who, despite the fact that they kind of came across and followed Feanor and participated in the bad stuff and cut themselves off, they they haven't really cut themselves off in their hearts, and they still long for... Valnor and that connection to the Valar and and that somehow that made them worthy or or made them fit suitable um for for people to be sort of steered by the Valar and and then in the end I mean you know they end up falling anyway and they have tragic stories but they're kind of rewarded in the sense that they they fall last and they have some of the best stories
0: Right right Yeah exactly I mean I don't think that um I don't think that there is uh, a—the looking to the West, from now on, certainly, is certainly in non-Noldor people, looking to the West is going to be a good thing. Um, But, um, well, okay, the Numenorian incident, but that's a different kind of looking to the West. Anyway, um, people who look to the West generally are good and generally are better, and I agree, I think there's—I don't think there's a coincidence that these two— you know, backwards-looking, westward-looking people are the two that Ulmo approaches. And of course, that's why they're hiding out, and that's why they are the two who are actually not actively... I mean, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting about them, they are not really contributing to the leaguer of Morgoth. You know, they, we've got you know the other people, you've got Thingol and Melian, who just by the nature of the girdle of Melian are walling off this one big section. You've got Fingolfin and Fingon up in the northeast, you know, sort of taking care of that side of things from the sea over essentially to uh to you know, to the path of Cirion. Um you've got the the other sons of Finarfin up there on Dorthonion, you've got the sons of Fëanor uh over there on the east. So they're all, and then you've got Turgon and Finrod hanging out hiding in their <laughs> in their hidden realms down to the south behind behind the the main lines. Turgen of course is up there pretty close to the lines, but because he's so sheltered in, he's uh he's not he's not actually taking any kind of active part in the siege. So, you know, on the one hand it seems like they're not really exactly being team players, but remember, the, it's all it's all vain. There's no point. They can't do it. They can't oppose it. Um and so what they are doing is, you know, and, and Olmo tells them, you know, the the wise thing for them to do. Um, and they are protected and they are blessed because of this. Um, even just remembering, you know, Nargothrond is really great. Um, it's not as great as Gondolin. Gondolin is the greatest, most beautiful, uh, most famous of all of the dwellings of the Noldor in Middle-earth. Um, but Finrod, you'll recall, doubtless you all recall from last week's chapter, uh, in the dis- in the description of the geography, that Finrod ruled the largest stretch of land of any of the Noldor. He he has like half of Beleriand under his rule, um, and so I mean again, w- there are these ways in which we can see both of them being blessed, not just. By the fact that they're going to end up surviving longer uh, than the rest of them, than the rest of the the kingdoms of the Noldor, but um, but we can see them being sort of blessed, even you know, sort of in in more in more kind of temporary ways. Um, yeah. So in the end, I do think that that looking back is a good thing. Um, but but I mean, of course, it's also it's also a tragic thing. Don't forget that Turgon didn't really want to go. He of all of the grandsons of finwe he was one of the ones who was speaking against fëanor and who was cautioning who was urging caution and who was sort of the most level-headed there were some like fingon um it, n- n- i'm sort of not even counting fëanor's sons you know as they were all like yes we shall swear this insane oath with you instantaneously but among the the comparatively level-headed um sons uh well children i should say including Galadriel, of fingolfin and finarfin Turgon was one of the was was singled out among them as one of the ones who was in opposition and who was who was who was not um supporting Fëanor. He goes along uh to stick with his brothers and his cousins and to uh and to help them. Um but he was not gung-ho about this. Um like some of the others among the Noldor were including, of course, we will remember, Goadriel. Now, um uh you know of course we'll, we'll we'll come back to goadriel uh later on tonight um and uh, you know i i i think it's kind of interesting to remember that to remember goadriel's role in the context of uh the conversation that we get between her and and melian later on um but let's uh let's move on to thingo um okay uh let's see um let's see jack you wanted to talk about about Thingol,
6: yeah. Um, toward the end of the chapter, um, Thingol finally finds out about all of the Noldar's dirty deeds back in Valar and 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 how they came here, why they came here, and one of the one of his punishments is to forbid the Noldar language, which is Quenya, right?
0: Yes. Yes.
6: Okay. Okay, so he forbids that language, and at first that just kind of seemed arbitrary and petty. But the more I thought about it, I thought maybe there's something more to it, and I just I have some ideas, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it.
0: Well, I mean, of course, it's a very uh, it's a very Tolkien kind of punishment, right? Um, we shall we shall uh, seek uh, retribution in the harshest way we can possibly think of. We won't let you speak your language. Um, So, yeah, I I mean, I think that that's, that's on the one hand, kind of very typical. Um, But uh, remember two things um, from earlier on that are clearly very much a part of this. One is that when the Noldor come, recall that Thingol claims absolute overlordship of all of Middle-earth, basically. He's like, okay, just keep in mind, you're in my realm now. Um, and I don't want you taking realms away from my people. And, of course, the Noldor, um, are saying, well, okay, look, you don't actually rule in these places because these places were overrun by orcs. So we're, we're going to set up our, our kingdoms here. Uh, and, you know, why don't you kind of get over yourself, Thingol, you rule in Doriath, that's great. Um, now, uh, as I say, let's, let's, let's all move on. Be grateful that you have us as your neighbors instead of the orcs. Um, so so it's so the first was his claim to to overlordship and you know we can see that when he makes this proclamation you know the sindar will hear my voice and they will they will follow along with what i'm about to dictate and they do right so we can see that he does still actually have this kind of influence however he doesn't actually have the power to 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 rule the noldor he can't give commands to the sons of fan or always i mean he can but they're not going to listen um nor even are the others uh i mean even the sons of fanarfin who are who are who are his what great nephews um they are not they still they're still not ruled by him um and he doesn't seem even to try to rule them though he has uh friendly relationships with them most of the time but um so so he doesn't actually try to assert political authority over them and so therefore making this proclamation this is the way that he can punish the Noldor and you see though the effect of the punishing is to uh, to remove the primary distinguishing things that separates the culture of uh, of the Noldor from the culture of the Sindar, which is their language, the two of them now speak different languages because their languages have been sundered for so long, um, and he now is going to make Beleriand monolingual. Essentially, we're told that, of course, Quenya doesn't die entirely and, and lives on as a as a language of lore. I love that expression, by the way, as a language of lore. That's what most people call dead languages. You see, but uh, uh, but in but in Tolkien's world, that is the life of a language, not its death. Um, it shall live on as a language of lore. Um, I always love that point, like Latin basically lives on uh, throughout the Middle Ages and beyond as a language of lore. Anyhow, um, but by removing them, it, by removing that distinction, he he basically uh, sort of melds the Noldor and the Cinder the Sindar, closer together, and therefore. In a sense, in effect, kind of increases his own stature. He is the one who rules over the Sindar, and the Noldor. Again, their 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 perspective: Hey, we'll rule. We'll set up our own little places, and we'll rule over them. And whatever you keep ruling the Sindar, that's fine. Um, we'll do our own thing. Well, now it's not that they're all Sindar now, um, but they are they they are less they are less distinguished. Um, so I think as an assertion of authority and as a kind of punishment. Um, Uh, I think it uh, it it seems it seems very effective. Um, And I think it's uh, it it certainly is in many ways, I think, kind of just it is interesting also the way in which the Noldor uh, go along with this. Um, But I'd love to hear other people's thoughts about this, too. Uh, Jack, did you want to go on and and, uh, say some of the things you were thinking about that?
6: Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, everything you said seems very pragmatic and spot on, and, and that works for me. But I was also thinking that, um, you know, in Tolkien you kind of get the idea that magic is really, really tied to language. And, you know, this was the language that Feanor used to to uh, rouse his people and, and do these terrible deeds. And I was just wondering if, you know, if Tingle was thinking, well, oh, there's something in Quenya that's not in Sindarin, I would allow someone like feanor to do that uh you know, i'm going out on a limb there it's kind of stretching it but that popped into my mind
0: well you know i think that's a, i think that that's a neat point um and i don't know if it's going a bit too far or not maybe but but you know it's hard to forget uh the eloquence of feanor and the speeches of of, of feanor and the way in which he was able to dominate people with his words um even as you know as the sons of finarfin say you know we 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 became as besotted with wine um you know they were made drunk by finor's words and That, uh, so, so, yeah, and, and, and that was, and that was in Quenya. Now, I mean, is, is, does that mean that Quenya is a more, you know, besotting language than Sindarin? I don't think so. Does that mean that Quenya is a, is a, is a sort of a more evil language? No, I don't think so. Um, but yeah, it it has been, it's not just that the Noldor, the people, have done evil deeds, um, I, I think you're right to sort of remind us the Quenya language has been perverted to evil uses, um, by es- especially by Feanor, um, and not just not just in his speeches, but in his oath as well, and the oath of the Sons of Feanor. Um, so, so yeah, I, I I definitely think that there is um, uh, that there's that there's something in that. I think that it's it's one of the things that makes this really um, a really elegant. Uh, moment, um, and, and I, the passage I'm looking for, and he, here it is, I just found it where he's actually making the proclamation, what he emphasizes, what, what Thingol em- emphasizes about it, all, and, and all such as use it, that is the tongue of the Noldor, um, so I, or I'll go back a sentence, all the Sindar shall hear my command, that they shall neither speak with the tongue of the Noldor, nor answer to it, and all and all such as use it shall be held slayers of kin and betrayers of kin unrepentant. If you repent... Notice, he's not just saying to to his people, this is a message directly to the Noldor. If you won't do this, I might not actually be your king. You might not actually submit to me so as to take orders from me. But I'm drawing a line in the sand right here. If you continue to use Quenya openly and are going to talk to me and my people in Quenya, then I am going to take it that you are un- unrepentant uh, for slaying your kin and betraying your kin. Um, if you want to show that you do repent of it, if you want to show that the kin slaying, you know, that was, was a bad thing and that you, um, then then you're going to do this. Um, then you're not going to use that language anymore, which has which has been used and uh, has been uh, um, uh, has been already kind of perverted in in those ways. Um so uh and and they they take him up on it and uh you know some of them perhaps uh, out of prudence um but uh but nevertheless um there is clearly this is this is in line also with what Angrod had just been saying. Um that they do repent the sons of Finarfin are innocent. Uh, of the kin certainly and their people are innocent of the kin and have only suffered harm and not done it uh, have suffered harm from their kin um uh, by you know in in the betrayal which which leads to the crossing of the hellkaraxa um and the um uh anyway uh, but um but they too repent for you know they are they they are sorry for the evil that was done so they get the opportunity to to demonstrate that they're sorry for it um by not speaking Quignan anymore yeah mike
7: i just uh well what i read into that was maybe here we have another uh couple we have Thingol and Melian mm-hmm. And what I read into that was Melian uh, only hears part of the story from Galadriel, and she she sort of infers and deduces like these very profound conclusions about what she's heard and the sort of long view consequences of, of the bits of information she's just heard from Galadriel. And then Thingol, when he hears the the whole story, you know, admits I've lost my temper and is forced to make a, a kind of Maybe not a rash decision, but a, a more forceful decision about what he's got to do with that information. And so I read that to be an illustration of, you know, a partial illustration of the temperaments of this, of the two two sides of this couple. And also an illustration of the fact that they are different types of beings. And maybe that's part of it, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is not the last time we're going to see Melian being much, much wiser and calmer uh, than Thingol. Um yeah, Thingol will screw up several times, and uh, and on other occasions, Melian will, um, will see it even more clearly than she does here. Um, yeah, I mean, I do like that moment where Thingol sort of recognizes, like, okay, I'm really mad right now, you better leave. I don't want to say anything that I'm going to regret later on. Um, you know, my heart is hot within me, um, but... Uh, you know but it does seem w- it, what he does is not just done rashly and it doesn't seem to be done unwisely because of course one of the consequences of this also you know as i as i said you know to the extent that the consequence of this uh decree by Thingol is to bring about a closer mixture of the two people that's a good thing i mean again back to um uh, back to Turgen comments as we discussed last time in Nevrast where Turgon settles that's where the joining of the Noldor and the Sindar had, had had um happened most and most completely we're told um Turgon does a better job of any of the other Noldor uh in bringing together Noldor and Sindar and we we're, we're even given the uh the detail as they're on their way to Gondolin that there are more Sindar than Noldor in in Gondolin, and the two of them are joined into one people, the Gondolindrum, as they will be called. And that's a good thing. So even if, and, and it doesn't seem, I mean, I'm not trying to say that that's Thingol's plan. He's like, I have this benevolent plan for, you know, the breaking down of barriers between the Sindar and the Noldor, but that is in fact a consequence of the decision that he makes here. Um, yeah, yeah, Dave? I wanted to point out that he, to me, he seems to both, um
5: he seems to both uh overreact and underreact. He he sort of he gets really mad and he makes this decree and it and it as you point out, it, it maybe has some uh good consequences, but I don't think he intends them. I think he's just doing it purely to punish the Noldor. Uh, and at the same time, he horribly he horribly underestimates the damage that the sons of Fanor will be able to do. Melian goes out of her way, of course this is before he gets the whole picture, but she goes out of her way to warn him, um, these guys are trouble, and he's, you know, and he just says like, wow, well, you know, they'll be a big help in the fight against Morgoth. Well, their swords will cut both ways. Ah, I'm not too worried about it. And, uh, and he just, I mean, he pays for that down the road and, and not just him but also his son. Um and uh and I just think that's interesting. He he really does seem to lack the wisdom that Melian has, uh in, in that he he overreacts in some things and in other cases he underestimates the, the, the damage that the sons of Fanor can do.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true. Though, you know, it's also kinda of hard to think what what would he have done differently there? That is, what would what would being even more cautious of the sons of Feanor look like, as it is he has no contact with them he doesn't uh he doesn't trust them he doesn't bring them in to do anything he doesn't do anything with them um uh so like in practical terms i'm not quite sure what uh, i'm not quite sure what distrusting them further uh would actually look like on the ground um but but I agree he 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 certainly that is i think a really classic illustration. Uh, here, as I said, we'll see more later, but that's a really classic illustration here of what it means that he has less wisdom than Melian. Um, that his thought is, you know, hey, well, awesome, at least they're not going to ally themselves with Morgoth and betray us, ha ha ha. Um, so uh, that's, yeah, n- no, not exactly. Um, but of course, the Sons of Feanor are going to ultimately be the enemies of Doriath.
5: um did did anyone ever did they don't specify i don't think does anyone ever report to him the the full contents of the oath of feanor and his sons i'm not sure if angrod reports that to him because now maybe it wouldn't have made a difference maybe he really believed that he was safe behind the girdle of melian but um he uh you know like you would think that maybe just maybe he would have fought twice about later decisions not to spoil it for anyone (laughs) uh if he if he had heard the full contents of the oath where they go on go on about you know doesn't matter who's got it if it's a Falar or morgoth or an orc or an elf or anyone anyone that's got one of those things we're coming after you uh and so uh you would think that maybe he would have had a slightly different perspective on everything if he had that in mind. But, you know, maybe not. Maybe he really, he was that arrogant and that short-sighted that he didn't care. And uh, anyway, I was just, that's a, popped into my mind.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 I do agree with that. And I agree that in, as you say, later decisions, um, I think the evidence later on is that he so he does seem to know about the oath. So I think either he finds it out here or he learns it in other ways. I'm pretty sure by the time... Uh, by the time Thingold gets to the point of making Silmaril-related decisions, uh, <clears throat> he's aware of the oath. Um, but, uh, but, I, but I agree. At the very least, it's kind of interesting that that doesn't seem to be a factor here. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, I mean, it's kind of understandable that his focus is on the kinslaying. Uh, I mean, the Teleri, it's not just his own brothers. I mean, these were his people. I mean, he was the he was the lord of these people before he, uh, y- you know, got kind of distracted on the way over. Um, but um, so, I, 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 you know, as I said, it makes perfect sense. No, no, uh, no, n- no criticism of Thingol that that's what his focus is. And obviously, that's a horrible thing. Um and sort of secondarily, he he points to the betrayal of uh, the children of Fingolfin and Finarfin. Um, you know when he talks about the 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 breach among the 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 the, the Noldor, which has which has only been not fully healed, um, even though sort of bridged over. But I do agree that it is kind of interesting that the oath doesn't come up here, because um, you'd think as if he's listing reasons why he's really upset at the Noldor and really disapproves of them you'd think that also pretty high on the list would be oh yeah and the sons of Fanor uh, the, the sons of Fanor have sworn this like hideously blasphemous oath um uh that that by itself even without the Kinslaying and and uh and and without the burning of the ships would still um Amount to very sufficient reason for him to disapprove of them and to uh, uh and to be extremely leery of them and even desire to punish them as he does uh go on to punish them um yeah I mean I think that 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 certainly seems to be um as i say interesting interesting that that doesn't come up here um and doesn't come up later perhaps as often as it should um that is for thingo um uh now John, you were talking about uh kirdan and uh, uh and dave was also interested in talking about Kirdon's wisdom here um did you have uh, did you have specific uh, uh uh suggestions about kirdan john um yes
2: i wanted to um actually bring up i think i'm not positive but um i believe Thingol
3: received a lot of the information regarding the mold from kirdan i think there's a brief passage mm-hmm. between the final conversation between Thingol and Melian, and finally when he meets with Finrod Felagund and um, Engelrod, yeah. um that he had some contact with Kyrdan. I mean, Kyrdan is one of these characters who we meet at the tail end, I believe, of the Return of the King, and we have several mentions of him throughout the Summerillion. Really. And yet he has to be, as you have pointed out earlier, I believe, in your uh, podcast and your class, one of the oldest characters we meet in the Lord. So, I mean, we hardly see him at all. I think he has, like, something like two or three lines. But I, I found it very interesting. You know, what would it what, what would have it really been like to see things from Curdon's point of view? And I, I know it's related and yet unrelated to what we're talking about, but I believe it holds true to the way Thingol is receiving, uh, you know, this news. Thingol is basically Lord of the Sindal and basically was, as you pointed out earlier, of the, you know, Teleran people. And he's a, of the Telerin. And Curdon is by the seashore and he's definitely, for sure, I, I don't know, I, I forget if he was a or not, but he seems pretty closely in line with that people, you know, a, a Teleri of Middle-earth. And his whole reaction, I, I can say, to basically the Kinsling, especially at uh, al would be very, very uh, negative towards the Moldau. I mean... I, I can obviously guess that I, I think Kirdong would be a pretty wise guy to tell, you know, hopefully, fact from the lies which are being spread abroad, and it, it seems like there are some lies. I, I don't know how distorted the news is by the time it reaches Thingle, but. I I, I can imagine that, you know, Morgoth has played off of this. I believe this is mentioned in the, the 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 text itself. But, you know, if we're to take into account the source of the information and its felicity, you know, regards to the way Thingol is reacting to this. I think it's important to realize that there is a middleman and he has a very key and interesting
0: Yeah. No, I uh I do um I do agree with you and I certainly agree. Kieran is such uh is such an interesting character. Um who gets so little said about him, um, both here and in the Lord of the Rings. Um, but but yes, uh, yeah. I mean, the passage, as you mentioned, it's a very short passage. In fact, uh, we can read the whole thing because it's uh, two sen- oh, almost one sentence. Two sentences. And Círdan, hearing these dark tales, was troubled, for he was wise and perceived swiftly that, true or false, they were put about at this time through malice though the malice he deemed was that of the princes of the Noldor because of the jealousy of their houses. Therefore, he sent messengers to Thingol to tell all that he had heard. And what he has heard, clearly, is about the kinslaying, because it is after Círdan's messengers arrive uh, uh, in Menegroth that um, Thingol has his angry confrontation with the sons of Finarfin. Now, um, I think here, you know, Círdan is wise, we are told. And I think, actually, between this and what we saw from Melian uh just on this same page, uh we can begin to see um a, almost like a definition of wisdom, or rather you know sort of this trend. Here is what it is to be wise. here is what wise people do and say, and that is you know the ability to see the consequences of things, the ability to put things into the big picture, not just to uh not just to get carried away with the individual. Um, things. That is like, oh, I've heard this shocking stuff about the Noldor. Oh my goodness. Like, I'm now going to spread... I I, I believe this implicitly and I'm going to spread this around. and looking at the bigger picture and saying, okay, there's clearly malice involved here. Um, Therefore we should be careful. Not just we should pay attention to what's going on because he does, in fact... You know, take part in the spreading of this stuff around, in reporting it to Thingol. But he—he's not just believing it and spreading it around. He's recognizing this is a problem. Not just these th- these these incidents like the kinslaying that are being reported. Not only are they a problem, and not only are they concerning, but the fact that these rumors are going around right now is a problem and shows that there is malice in the land. Um, and we got to be really careful that. That is wisdom. Just as Melian's, you know, response: their sh- their swords and their counsels shall have two edges. That also is wisdom. Um, don't just be too quick to say, okay, you know, like uh, Theonor and his sons are are these unpredictable entities, and they're clearly untrustworthy and and uh, and dangerous. But, you know, they really hate Morgoth, so that's pretty cool. So uh, at least uh, we've got these dangerous people hating Morgoth near us, so that's uh, that's all to the good. No, not all to the good, as Melian sees. Um, but I think, of course, the interesting thing here about Círdan is not just that he is wise enough to see that there is malice afoot, but that he doesn't see where the malice is. He doesn't realize that this is Morgoth. Um, and he thinks that the malice is the malice of the princes of the Noldor. And I think it's really interesting there to think, to to, to basically just to think about that a little bit. What exactly is Círdan thinking here? What's Círdan's theory? His theory is that some of the Noldor are spreading these rumors maliciously, with malicious intentions against others of the Noldor? Um, I guess, therefore, he's... Suggesting or believing that these rumors are being spread by by who by the people of Fingolfin and Finarfin uh, in malice against the sons of Feanor, like we're gonna we're gonna like out them on the kinslaying um, in order to get them in trouble uh, with their Sindar neighbors, you know? And Thingol, is, I mean that that's is is that what he thinks? Or is it the malice of the sons of Feanor, who are obviously malicious, and one would suspect them of malice, but if so, what's, what does he think their plan is? Mike, what do you think?
7: I, I wanted to just go back to your, your point about intent, and I thought that was a great point. I circled that in my my text as well. I think that's, that's key to the wiser characters in all the stories, is that they're always curious about the intent behind actions. And I was reminded of Iuvatar exploring the intent behind alay's creation of the door. so I, I just saw that connection there, but I think you you've laid out the two possible uh, ideas that Sirton might have in his head in terms of uh what these what these rumors might be and who might be uh you know uh putting them out there,
0: yeah, but neither one of them really makes all that much sense um and what I think is most interesting about it is if Cirdan whichever of those two things Cirdan is convinced of um what does that suggest about how he views the Noldor um because i think you have to i would think you would have to have a, a relatively low opinion of them in order to believe either one of those two things um i don't know i mean maybe i'm not being fair there but but again, I think it's I think it's pretty suggestive. Oh, and just to uh, to, to to clarify um, and answer uh, John some of the questions that you were asking. Yes, Kierdon uh, is one of the Teleri, um, as we may recall from what is now quite a long time ago, our discussion of of the early chapters um, when the elves when this when the Teleri came west last of everyone else um the 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 vanyar and the noldor had already departed for valinor and they dwelt in Beleriand and on the shores of the sea for a long time and remember they became uh they became friends with ase and um and you know and really enjoyed it there but eventually they decided to go on and you know many of the teleri went but some who chose to stay behind, living there by the sea and being friends with Ase as they always had, and Cirdan was the chief of those Teleri who chose not to go. Not the ones who stayed behind looking for Thingol. That was a different subset of the of the Sindar who didn't leave. Um, uh, but uh, but this is the 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 Falathrim, the elves of the coast, the elves of the havens and the harbors. Um, the ones who chose their friendship with Assay and their love for, for Beleriand over the, the trip, the final leg of the trip, uh, uh, to, to Valinor. So that's where sort of Círdan uh, comes from. But anyway, Dave, uh, uh, back to the, back to the bigger question.
5: Is there any possibility of reading this as sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing? Because to me, I think you're you're getting at something. Saying like, there's really only a couple of explanations, and neither of them makes terribly much sense. And really, in the end, um, however wise Cirdan might be, he serves Morgoth's purpose. He he furthers along the purpose of Morgoth. I mean that that's something that <clears throat> we hadn't mentioned yet. Okay, where the heck is it? uh let's see something about ah yes there we go but the sindar were yet unwary and trustful of words and as may uh, well be thought morgoth chose them for this first assault of his malice for they knew him not first of all i think that's very i think it's very interesting that they describe uh, Morgoth spreading lies and trying to, um, um, uh, you know, sow discord through the use of lies as an assault. I think that's a very interesting description. But um, getting back to Cirdan, you know, like it, it, however wise he might, might have been, however discerning he might have been about the malice and the lies, and, and however measured his response might have been, well, I'm going to gather this up and tell Thingol because he should probably know what's going on out there. In the end, Morgoth comes out on top of all of this. And so maybe there's a possibility of reading this as tongue in cheek, you know, yeah, Keridan. Yeah. He, was, yeah, yeah. He was a pretty wise guy, you know, <laughs> gathering up all these stories and sending them over to Thingol because in the end he wasn't wise enough to really see what was going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Though, you know, okay, here, he, he, here's a uh, uh, a defense of Cairden, um, uh, and his, and, and his wisdom on those grounds. Manway lacked this same kind of wisdom, it seemed, that is, he didn't know Morgoth, or rather he did not fully appreciate the depth and completeness of the change in Melkor's heart, we're told. Um he believed that he could in fact amend. Um and it you know, it turns out that no, he isn't going to amend and the implication is, you know, basically has already gone too far to amend, has set himself against amendment, and that Manway doesn't understand that, um, and so Kiriun is sort of parallel, seems kind of parallel to to Manway there, which is which is no, you know, could be worse, but um, but I, I think when we when we talk about them not knowing Morgoth here, they don't know how he operates. Um, and because I mean, it's it. This is the one thing that I always try to remind myself in this passage because it seems, it seems so dumb for the Teleri not to think of that. Like, okay, hmm, gosh, things are being spread around like that were cause dissension among the elves. Um, and even Cirdan's like, and boy, this is clearly malicious talk. Who could be maliciously spreading stories that would sow dissension among the enemies of Morgoth? I. Can't think of anybody other than, I guess, maybe the Noldor. Um, I mean, it just, it seems like, come on. I mean, this is not even putting two and two together. It's like putting one and one together, right? Or just like, uh, but, but they don't know Morgoth. They don't know that he does this kind of thing. They don't know what he's like. Um, To them, he's just the enemy. The Sindar, remember, have had no interactions with him at all. The only two ways they have ever encountered Morgoth at all is first, by the shores of Quivienen, when he was there as like the, the the dark rider that would capture some of them and turn them into orcs, um, you know, so like the fearful legends of the earliest days. That's memory number one, and memory number two is that he's the dude who sends these armies of orcs down, which slaughter as many people as they can. Um, so he they they've seen him act as warlord, um, but but they have not. Had that whole, you know, serpent in the Garden of Eden experience with them that the Noldor have had over there in Valinor when he is with them and he is um, flattering them and he is manipulating them and sowing lies. They don't know that he works this way. They don't know that he operates this way, um, and they seem to vastly underestimate. And of course, and they they may also well assume, like the Noldor assume, that he's pretty well penned up. Um, that he's, uh, that is, that Morgoth is pretty well penned up, that he's not going to, uh, be able to spread lies like this. Um, and, and again, they, they, they are underestimating him because they don't know. Um, yeah, Chris, go ahead.
4: I'll stick up for Kirdan, uh just a little bit. Yeah, he heard, he's heard all of these rumors and yes, by passing it along, maybe he's furthering the, uh, um spreading of the rumors but uh Thingol is his uh, his lord and it would seem to me that it was his duty to kind of you know keep him informed these are the things i'm hearing so i think it's maybe not quite fair to say that uh, he shouldn't have been reporting this to Thingol. just a just a, an observation
0: yeah no that's true i mean i don't think um he, he's certainly not just rumor mongering here um in fact by telling Thingol, he's doing the thing that he most sensibly and best can in order to stop them um, because Thingle's the one who's in a position to say like okay people you know let's uh, let's think about this let's take a look at these things and let's stop doing this um, so uh, so so, yeah no I mean I, I agree I, I don't think that his his sending this message on to Thingol is um, itself like a wicked act or a corrupt act though again I I still don't... I mean, I don't think that Dave's wrong to say that. It is still his report that brings about the confrontation. Um, And the moment of division between the elves is actually brought to pass by the thing that Curedan does. Again, not with malicious intent, and and I don't think there's anything sketchy in his decision to report it to Thingol, but nevertheless, it is the thing... uh, This is still the... the goal that Morgoth had in mind the whole time was to create this division right. uh, and this resentment that is created. But then, of course, trumping even that, as usual, is that nevertheless, good is going to come from this as well. Um, you know, so uh, so you know, it's a win in the end. But um, but yeah, no, I, I I I do agree with your with your qualification there that I don't think that this is a. A like a reprehensible act by by, by or something.
4: I can't see that he would have done anything else. That uh, that he would. I mean, just as you'd report what would be possible intelligence or or just additional facts to your boss. That just seems like that would he'd be. You know, he would have been. It wouldn't have been a good decision. He wouldn't know the the further ramifications. But it, that would be seem to me the only decision he could make. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I I exactly I do I do definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, good. Um uh Dave, you had wanted to talk before about um sort of comparing and contrasting Gondolin and Nargothron with, with Doriath. Um I I I, I think that, that sounds like an excellent idea. So uh do you wanna do you wanna start that one off?
5: Sure. I don't have too many deep thoughts to offer about it. Um mostly just I mean, I think that's sort of a natural direction to take the conversation because those are kind of the three strongholds, right? Um, there, I mean, there really aren't any other strongholds in Middle Earth at this time, um, right. well, I mean, and you've there's got the kind of a, the, a a, the city, a chapter yeah. in each book, or I mean, there's a chapter of, for each of these places, essentially describing its downfall. Uh, and I think it's—I think it's—I just think it'd be an interesting conversation. How are they alike? How are they different? In how they were founded, and what is the nature of their sort of uh, their protectedness, and how they eventually came apart, and um, the nature of their rulers and stuff. But I haven't put much thought into it. I just think it's interesting.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Does anyone have any have any thoughts? Any uh, any uh, anything you'd like to point out? Yeah, Mike, go ahead
7: the ball rolling and i will say that doriath when melian's quote-unquote magic is in operation i think is the sort of the the best protected stronghold because of that quote-unquote magic but gondolin is more spectacularly beautiful and idealized that would be my my first two observations
0: yeah yeah you know though you can say in one sense that all three of them have Protection um, have yeah, uh, well. I'm tempted to use the word supernatural, which is always a kind of a, an awkward word to use uh, uh, in Tolkien's fiction. But still, they all have to some extent supernatural protection. Million, of course, most obviously and most openly, uh, uh, with her with her girdle of protection. But remember that both Gondolin and Nargothrond are also protected by Ulmo. Um You've got w- the explicit references to Ulmo's guarding and and uh, um, concealment of the approach to Gondolin. Uh, but also with uh, with Nargothrond, it, the way that it's it's protected by the river Narag. Um, recall, well, I say recall, recall the bit we haven't read yet. Um, when things go bad for Nargothrond. The, the, the sort of the centerpiece of uh, what is going to open Nargathron to destruction is the building of a bridge over the River Narag. Um, when they are no longer basically submitting themselves to the protection of the river and therefore Ulmo through it, then that's when, that's when things are, are going to go wrong. Now, there's clearly a much more direct um, protection uh, of Doriath then there is almost a little bit, you know, much more behind the scenes than Melian is there. Um, but they all they all have a measure of that protection. I say, uh, Jack, you just made an interesting point, which I actually think is 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 well worth uh, um, well worth raising. Do you want to? Uh, I just saw you uh, said something in the text over there. That I think is interesting.
6: Yeah, I was being facetious when I said that Gondolin was uh, unsullied by dwarven hands. But but when I did read it, I did note that uh, you know this was all made by elves. And I was thinking of uh, um, the place in um, Doriath. Um, what's it called? Menegroth. Menagroth. Uh, Menegroth. Menegroth. Where where they brought in the dwarves to uh, to uh, help create it? But Gondolin, it was all elf, elfish design.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I do think that that's interesting. Um, and it's one of the reasons why, well, I don't know, it's one of the reasons why, but it is certainly significant. Gondolin is like the elvish place. Uh, it's like the most elvish place uh, in Beleriand. Um, and I, I, I do think it's it's an interesting kind of trend. I, and I, I, I agree with you sort of joking about uh, in, in the use of the word unsullied uh, by Dwarven hands. Um, because it doesn't seem to be a bad thing, really, but, but, but it's true. Menagroth was built in in large part by the dwarves, and Nargothrond was established first in the site of a place which had originally been uh, built by dwarves, and then we know that Finrod enlisted the assistance of the dwarves. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, we see both of those two things, um, the dwarves contributing, but Gondolin is sort of... Uh, Okay, I'm tempted to use the word pure, but again, that seems unnecessarily pejorative towards the dwarves. But um, but certainly isolated, it is. It is. It is only. It, you know. There is, it, it is only elvish. You know, and we will get there. Will only there will only ever be two non-elves who will ever go into or see gondolin Uh, that is you know before all the dragons and balrogs come in um and and orcs but prior to that there are only two non-elves who will ever go in there um and again i think it's you know it's like the little not only does it look back and remember valinor it becomes like this little mini valinor this little mini guarded realm this 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 little mini um elven home um and that certainly is, I think, an essential part of the story of Gondolin and what Gondolin sort of stands for and how it functions. Um, whereas, Doriath is like the fortress of the Sindar. This is—it's the last realm, you know, where we find wh- where the Noldor find it when they when they come over to Beleriand. Is you've got Doriath is like this island, and the rest of the place is overrun with orcs. They've conquered almost everything. Cirdan is under siege. His cities haven't been taken, but his lands have been overrun. So, you have, but but Dorioth is still, you know, it's like the last, um, the last bit of old Beleriand, the last bit of of how things were before the sun rose, before the moon rose, um, before the Noldor returned, before Morgoth came back. Um, it's like the last bit of the old days in Middle-earth, um, and. Nargothrond well you know on one level also Nargothrond is much less well developed Um, even to the fact that it's we don't get even the same kind of physical description we're told some of the details of Menegroth for instance even just its name the thousand caves is pretty evocative and uh, and you know we're given descriptions of you know the stone pillars within it that are carved to look like the, the the, 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 the branches of trees and all those things um, and of course, with Gondolin, we get uh, some descriptions of what that city looks like and its staggering beauty. Nargothrond is—I the, mean, there's a, it's a bunch of caves, and it's kind of made to look like Menegroth, but we don't—we um, don't really know uh, that much about it in detail. Um, so, so yeah, it's—I it's, I, I find it harder to talk about to talk about Nargothrond um, than the other two. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, Mike, did you have something you wanted to add? Nope.
1: Okay. All right.
0: Um, Okay. (laughs) Let's see. Uh, Laura, you're back. Do you wanna? Would you like another shot?
1: Well, I have no idea what you said for about the last (laughs) I don't know ten minutes. So I have no idea if you if you covered it or not. But um, I was just gonna say that uh, Gondolin uh, was wasn't that built uh, to resemble uh, Tyrion? Yes. The city of Tyrion, the White City. So and and Nargathon was just basically built as a hiding place um, so so that's an, another difference uh especially between Doriath uh which is I get the impression more of a just a, a natural realm um, and I always picture it sort of like the uh, in the hobbit when we come across the the mirkwod elves yes. i sort of uh, picture it and picture the people more like that but um Gondolin Seems more like a, a civilized place. I guess I'm I'm trying to say, you know, mm-hmm. trying to bring back the civilization um, that existed in Valinor. Yeah. But the other thing I've always wondered is, how did Gondolin stay hidden when it was visible from the air? Uh, didn't Morgoth have, you know, crows that he would send out spying the land? Nope. Or is there something I've missed on that? <clears throat> no, he. Doesn't. I guess
0: not. <laughs> he doesn't. He. Do, well, he doesn't. And if 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 he ever does suborn any birds, the eagles will, you know, <laughs> beat the stuffing out of him. The eagles protect that, him. It, it, yeah. Uh, and they, you know, they 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 make their eyries in the chrysagram in the in the 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 the, the, the mountains around Gondolin. Um, and of course, since Balrogs obviously can't fly, they don't, they can't see <laughs> in the Gondolin. I mean, this is, this, and it's, seriously, it's one of the, it's one of the most obvious illustrations of the fact that that M- Morgoth plainly does not have any air power, because the only reason you would not find Gondolin... Um, is if you don't have any air power, uh, and you never fly, and none of your servants ever fly, um, and if he does get birds who work for him, yeah, they don't make it back alive from, uh, from the chrysaigrim, so there it is, um, but yes, no crows, no, no, OEC, yeah none that return.
1: You'd think you'd wonder what happened to all those birds that went that way, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's a, it's a dangerous country. You know, maybe uh, maybe uh, like Shelob and uh, her siblings uh, caught them. You know, also possible. They live around there too. Um, but uh, actually, you know, one of the points that I wanted to make um, about, yeah, I, and uh, uh, Laura, you're making me think of that with this, your reminders about the connection between Gondolin and Tyrion there. Um, and this was actually uh, referring back to a, a comment that that Jason made in the text chat sort of jokingly a, 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 a little while back when I was making the connection between Finrod and Turgon as the two of the Noldor chieftains who uh, who look back towards Valinor most, and Jason was joking about Finrod's other big reason for looking back towards Valinor, which is his girlfriend that he left behind. And I, 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 that is, mean, that is of course, funny, but actually I think it's really true. I, I think it's actually a really important thing, um, and this is where we end this chapter, which I think is, which I think you know, it sort of shows that it's kind of significant. What we learn here um, about Finrod, and I think I think we see a really crucial thing about Finrod. Turgon is both of them actually also are wifeless, um, though for different reasons. Turgon, we will learn in the next chapter, is wifeless because his wife died during the crossing of the Hel-Karaxa. um Finrod is wifeless because his uh you know girlfriend or fiance or whoever um was left behind in Valinor and didn't come with them uh because she was one of the Vanyar um and uh um but i think therefore one of the one of the things that this establishes about finrod is finrod is not at home in middle earth he, he 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 has left uh, you know, he has left part of his heart back in Valinor. He is never going to have a family. He's never going to have children. He's never going to establish a line uh, here in in in, in Middle Earth. And it's not just because, uh, you know, he as as he says, he foresees the downfall of Nargothrond and realizes, I am not going to have a realm to, uh, you know, to 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 give to a son. What what on earth difference is it going to make? Um, but it's not just that. He never really fits in here um and so that i think actually makes for an interesting kind of contrast with um between Turgon and um and Finrod Finrod is a kind of wayfarer here in Middle-earth he he has the biggest kingdom but he's not he's not at home here he doesn't have both of his feet in Middle-earth Turgon does and he now he's still looking back he's looking back really hard but he, what he's doing is making a second version in 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 homage to the other, and in memory of it, and thinking about it a lot, and clearly with respect to the Valar and everything else. But yet he builds a home, a real home. Gondolin is going to be his place. Memory of Tyrion but it's going to be his place, and that's why he's the one. Notice Finrod isn't told by Olmo, love not too well the works of your own hands. He's not in any threat of loving Nargothrond so much that, he's, that he can't give it up. In fact, what he tells us, the, the, the foreboding that he has at the end of this chapter, is, I'm going to give it up. Uh, the time's going to come when, I." in fact, I'm getting ready to give it up. I'm, pretty soon I'm going to be giving up this and I, I don't want to, uh, you know, I know that, that that I need to be prepared. Um, and he's going to. Um, we will see him do what Turgon certainly is not going to be able to do. Um, or certainly going to have a, a heck of a lot of a harder time doing. Um, so yeah, love not to well the work of your own hands. Uh, Finrod's got that covered already. He doesn't need that memo. Um, yeah, Laura?
1: Well, the interesting thing about uh, Turgon uh you know, everything... And here's a big spoiler here, in case you didn't know. Uh, you know, Gondolin is completely destroyed, too. But um, from Turgon's son, Tour, we end up uh, with uh, Arendelle. So, yeah. you know, it, it, you can't foresee all ends, I yep, guess. Yep,
0: No, I mean, Gondolin is going to have a role to play. Uh, Gondolin and the Gondolindrum are going to have a role to play, and it is true that ultimately... Um, you know salvation is going to come you know indirectly um through in as much as arendel is the is the you know sort of the the vehicle or the um i don't know what stimulus the uh the 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 prompting uh of the salvation that's going to come you know, Gondolin is the one that's going to play the chief role in that, and not Nargothrond. Um, Nargothrond, in the end, is not going to have that kind of heritage, that kind of lasting, um, that kind of lasting effect, effect, that kind of lasting monument. Um, and Gondolin will. So, yeah, this is. It's not to say that you know, Finrod is doing it completely right, and Turgon is, and Turgon is not. Again, I don't think what Turgon is doing is bad, but it does show, I think, a different kind, a different quality of of looking back on Finrod's part. Than on Turgon's, um, yeah. Go ahead, Laura.
1: Yeah, and and Dave just pointed out to me, Tuor is not Turgon's son. He's his oh, son-in-law. Yeah, son-in-law. Sure,
0: right. No, but the, <laughs> but the, I mean, it is it is it is it is through Turgon's uh, through Turgon's house. I mean, Eorindil is you know still Turgon's grandson. So yeah, yeah. No, I I knew where you were going with that. Um, okay, we should uh, we should get to uh, we. Should, we should get to Goadriel and the uh scurrilous accusations that Dave has been longing to level against Goadrial this whole time. So uh Dave, you wanna uh do you wanna come out in the open uh with your anti Goadrial sentiments here?
5: Yes, I sure do. And also I have to um <clears throat> since Matt had to leave, I have to toss I have to integrate his comments with mine. Um, mostly he and I were both struck by the, uh, fact that, uh, Galadriel kind of pulls what was known on for you Seinfeld fans out there, Galadriel pulls what was known on Seinfeld as the yada, 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 where you tell a story and you kind of leave out the unpleasant details in the middle that, <laughs> that you'd rather not recount to your listening audience. And you just kind of skip over it and you're like, well, you know, yeah, we were over there and, uh morgoth uh did some really horrible things killed finway stole the Silmarils, and uh well yada 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 here we are we're over here and we're you know we're fighting for revenge and uh and uh you know we came over of our own accord we weren't kicked out or anything no big deal and melian's like uh-huh sure <laughs> I I I think it's very interesting. Uh, Gladriel, the Gladriel that we see in the Silmarillion is quite different in character from the Gladriel that we see in um um Lord of the Rings. Uh I, I think that actually goes for elves in general. Elves, elves in the Lord of the Rings um eh, appear to be sort of high and lofty and kind of elevated above men. And in the Silmarillion we see elves are pretty much about as petty and uh um Capable of screwing up as as men are, yeah.
0: Lord,
1: go ahead, Dave. <laughs> I can't believe you just called Galadriel petty. Uh, well, the way I read it was that she was uh, trying to be circumspect. She, you know, because she was on the the wronged end of what Theonor uh, did, so she was trying not to um, bring accusations against her her fellow Noldor. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, maybe she didn't want to be the one to, to bring that up. So, I, I didn't see it as, as her being petty so much, as, as her just being, uh, trying to be circumspect, trying not to um, lay blame on, on uh, others.
5: Well, I, I, so I wasn't really so much saying she was petty as just, the the picture of the elves in the Silmarillion is not one of of people who who really got got it all figured out and have have the right perspective on the world and are are clearly oriented to, against evil and doing the right thing and making the right decisions, um, and that's kind of the of course you know in the lord of the rings we're seeing the hobbits um perception of elves but gladriel in particular i mean yeah i mean it's similar to it's similar to um 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 uh, the other noldor who um this you know the house of finarfin who are visiting Thingol who are like you know We would really rather not be painted with the same brush as the sons of Feanor, but but we also don't want to speak ill of the other Noldor, especially because we know what they'll say about us if we do. Nevertheless, I don't know, there's just something about her responses to Melian here that are very... you know, it's not. It doesn't paint a good picture of her. It. She doesn't look too. She doesn't come off looking too good at this point. She looks very um, elusive and dishonest, and it looks like she's covering this up. And
1: I um, don't you know. It's it's a diff- very different yeah. kind of gladriel. And well, there is one one thing, and I've thought this too reading the Silmarillion. This is the youth of the elves. The they're basically. You know, you could almost call them call it their adolescence. By the time we are reaching the Lord of the Rings, I mean, obviously it's, you know, 7,000 years later, they've, they've passed their adolescence, they're, they're in their, um, they're in their decline almost, so they have a lot more wisdom at that point.
0: Yeah, I mean I would definitely I would definitely uh uh agree with that and also add don't forget the shift in perspective that is the shift in narrative viewpoint between the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings too. One of the reasons that the elves look so much loftier and so much further above the, you know, sort of petty concerns and temptations and uh and and shortcomings of mortals is that it's told from the mortal perspective. So especially it's told from the Hobbit perspective. So, you know, if you're not only a mortal creature um, who's only, you know, a, a few dozen years old um, and you're looking up at, you know, from, from, from about two and a half to three feet above the ground um, at these elves, you're you're not going to see this stuff, and that's the perspective that we get in the Lord of the Rings. Whereas here, this is an in-house discussion um, by the elves. They know full well, and also I think the effect that Laura has. They're not as wise then as they have come to be. Um, there's been a whole lot more water under the bridge. Uh, you could say, I mean, they've been around for a long time. They might be more than chronologically. They might be more than halfway um, between the you know the 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 the. Awakening by Queen Viennan and, and the end of the third age. Um, at the beginning of the first age is who even knows exactly how long, but but nevertheless, a lot happens during that time. There's, there's a whole lot of tragedy and a whole lot of suffering, um, and a whole lot of learning and increasing in wisdom that's going to happen, uh, between then. And 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 Laura's absolutely right about the fading time and stuff. So, um, so clearly, we do have the elves as a whole are in a different place, and certainly the elves who are the survivors of the first age um the 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 no, i almost mentioned corfindle and he's of course only a survivor in a rather peculiar sense um the non-survivors like Corfindel, uh the, the the repeat customers um but uh, but anyway i say repeat customers as if there are many of them um but uh um but anyway no c- clearly they have also changed as well as the perspective of the narrative changing, but we can't underestimate the, uh, the importance, the effect of that, um, of that change in the perspective on the narrative. Um, uh, let's see, Chris, did, uh, you wanted to, to, uh, to contribute to this directly here.
4: Yeah, just a little bit here. I guess I had always envisioned when I read this part about Galadriel, I, even, I envision her sitting and squirming in her chair uncomfortably as she's being, uh, question by Melian and uh, and actually when you look at it she doesn't deny the guesses that Melian makes about you know Melian's not quite on the money but she makes a lot of pretty shrewd guesses and uh, lateral doesn't really deny any of it she just says you're not going to hear the details from me So I thought that was kind of an interesting um, point you know she's she's I envision her being very uncomfortable in that in that spot but uh, anyway just thought I'd throw that out there
0: yes Um. You know, and that that moment in particular, Chris, um, when Melian is saying, um, For what cause, Galadriel, were the high people of the Noldor driven forth as exiles from Ammon? Or what evil lies on the sons of Feanor that they are so haughty and so fell? Do I not strike near the truth? Near, said Galadriel. And when I hear this, when I hear Galadriel say near, what I always want her to say next is, but not in the gold. Uh, because, of course, that is what Frodo says during the almost exactly parallel scene when Frodo is talking to Faramir um, in the Two Towers, and he is being pressed to reveal something he is not comfortable revealing. Um, and mm-hmm. Faramir asks him, do I not strike near? And Frodo says, yes, near, but not exactly right. Um, and uh, um, anyway, uh, that th- this is... Um, I don't want to make too much of that parallel, of course that this is not the same situation, although the one thing that I think is parallel about it is that you have um two people who are not who who are neither one of them actively deceiving each other, neither one of them are acting with malicious intentions, but yet um there is a lack of openness between the two of them. Um, now you can say Frodo has an unequivocally noble uh, reason for doing this—that he is he is being prudent, he is being wise. He knows he's not supposed to just blab about the Ring and blab about their um, their quest to anybody that he meets, and he doesn't really know who this guy is. But Goadriel so here, Laurie, here's my defense uh, of of Galadriel um, uh, to 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 assist in your argument against Dave. Um, the Goadriel's yada, 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 that is the stuff that she leaves out is not just the stuff that looks bad. Um, In fact, one she we're told that she leaves out three things, but still she said no word of the oath, nor of the kinslaying, nor of the burning of the ships at Laskar. And the third one is the one that I think really sticks out. Like, okay, okay, yes, uh, like the oath that would look bad for the sons of fan or the kinslaying. Oh okay, there's some pretty obvious reasons why we don't really want to go there. Um but nor of the burning of the ships at 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 Loscar. That's she was a victim of the burning of the ships at Loscar. Um she that is Almost self sacrificial. I mean, this is what uh, this is like the, the position that 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 Angrod uh, reacts to later on, what he feels so frustrated by. You know, like I've not talked about this f- out of loyalty, out of loyalty specifically to the sons of Fanor. I could have been bad mouthing them the whole time, um, uh, you know, with a kinsling, but at least with it, with the burning of the ships, that is something there's no motivation. Uh, to 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 uh, to conceal that, concealing the oath is a good reason to conceal the oath. She uh, she's she's going to conceal the oath because she doesn't want them to. Th- you know, she, it, it, if she tells them about the oath, then this is prompting Thingol and Melian to be thinking, okay, these Noldor can't be trusted. Certainly, the sons of Feanor—they're like you know—they've t- they've taken this blasphemous pact um, that makes me real uncomfortable having them as neighbors. That's going to create direct trouble. Uh, between them, potentially. The Kinslaying, uh, you know, I mean, whatever, enough said. I mean, that's really direct trouble, not only with the Sons of Feanor, but also with some of the people of the Sons of Fingolfin who we're told are not, uh, are not innocent of the uh, of the Kinslaying who come and, and pitch in when they arrive and find the battle already joined. But the burning of the ships that has nothing to do with Thingol. That has no implications for Thingol. Um, other than, again, you know, like saying you can't really trust the sons of Feanor, but he'd already, even, even Thingol had already tumbled to that one. Um, but uh, but anyway, I mean, this is, this you know, she could, you could very plausibly tell that one in order to build confidence in the Noldor. Um, that is, at least in most of them, right? Um, hey, but don't worry, you can totally trust you know Fingolfin and his people because like look what we did look look what we suffered um and we forgave it right so if we have forgiven the sons of Feanor after what they did to us then you know surely we are an example to you Thingol right so so this is this is a this is a motivation for for union and yet she's not even willing to do that because in order to do that you still have to throw the sons of Feanor under the bus and she won't do it um and that that's that's pretty good. Um that's that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, Dusty brings up a a good a good point. What if Million asked where they got the ships that they burned? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh okay, yeah, I guess it is a little bit hard to uh, uh to tell the whole story of the burning of the ships at Lost Car without any reference to the Kinsling and all. You don't have to mention necessarily that they were swan ships, you know, uh uh ships uh, in a certain unnamed and insignificant group of ships that were burned um uh that is a very that is that is a very fair point dusty um Laura you wanted to you wanted to add something a minute ago yeah
1: i just want to say you know all those things she'd be talking about she re- wouldn't really be talking about herself with any of that she'd be talking about other people um kind of like the opposite of what we were criticizing Kierdan for uh, spreading these rumors, she she doesn't want to uh, bring up some of this stuff. I think because it's it's not her. I think she'd be willing to talk about something that that she did, but when you know all she can say is, "Oh, look what so and so did, or these guys did that, or these," you know, she's talking about other people, and maybe that's why she doesn't want to bring it up.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's it's not just like sort of pure and blind solidarity. Um, I mean, and I think her her last line is. It's sort of hard to understand. Maybe, said Goadriel. but That is, you know, I'd, Melian has just said, um, you know, a darkness you would cast over the long road from Tyrion, but I see evil there, which Thingol should learn for his guidance. Maybe, said Goadriel, but not of me. Maybe he should learn it, but he ain't going to learn it from me. Um, and that's, you know, I, I'm almost tempted to wonder to what extent, you know, that sort of part prophecy as well but um but i do think getting back the you know, the thing that i will say in defense of Dave's observation about Goadriel being different Goadriel is 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 my primary candidate for people that you can see who have increased in wisdom elves that you can see who have increased in wisdom since the first age um and she clearly has um the, this is the second real uh, role that we see Galadriel playing, the second time we see her really involved in the narrative the first time, is when she wants to go. She is like one of the big Fanor supporters. Not that she's in his camp, not that she really likes him and approves of him, but when Fanor is making his recruitment speech, hey, let's leave Valinor, let's go back to Middle-earth and let's establish kingdoms and we won't let the men take it over and um, this will be awesome. She is one of the people who is most gung ho about that, and who whose own desires resonate with Feanor's desires, um, to rule a kingdom after her own will, um, and, but I think it's also really interesting. We don't see her do that. Um, of everybody who gets a kingdom, she doesn't get one, and I don't think this is just like, well, she's a girl; she doesn't get a kingdom. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily the problem here. She stays first with Melian and Thingol and then with uh with Finrod we're told in Nargathron for a while after that um I don't think she I think she could go and set up a kingdom if she wants to but she doesn't instead she is engaged in this like long apprenticeship under Melian it seems um and uh and that seems Potentially to be one of the reasons that she doesn't want it to be from her. Uh, that um, that that they learn this. Um, Dave, go ahead.
5: That's a very interesting point. I I think I'm willing to I'm willing to buy that she uh, started learning her lesson on the way over, and that her time spent in uh, Doriath under the tutelage of Melian did her some good. You know, it's very interesting that. She spends all this time with Melian, the, the sort of the, the, the the power or the force behind Doriath and, and the, the sort of protective power, which is a role that she herself goes on to play later on in the Lord of the Rings. And she, she, she has much the same role in, um, Lothlorien that Melian has in Doriath.
0: Oh yeah, totally. No, I mean, she, she's going to be like the mini Melian, uh, in the third age, um, even in looking, as you say, at the sort of the, the dynamics uh, of their of her relationship with Celeborn, whom she meets here, of course, this is this is the other thing that's going on. Kelleborn is a kinsman of Thingol, um, so this is where she and Kelleborn get together. But just as Thingol and Melian, Thingol, you know, I mean, he's 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 awesome in everything, but you know, his wife is a goddess, and so I mean, she is the one who clearly has the greater power, although. You know, Thingol is genuinely ruling; Um, that is, he actually makes decisions, even though he is obviously not the most powerful member of that marriage. Um, But a similar thing is is definitely true of Galadriel and Celeborn; Um, that is, she is obviously just as obviously above above Celeborn. Though it's less obvious that Celeborn actually makes the decisions like Thingol clearly does make the decisions, we don't really see Celeborn making all that many decisions uh, in The Lord of the Rings, and people will just talk about Galadriel and her will and her desire. Um, but anyway, no, th- th- that parallel is clear, and you think of that, that speech right after, um, right after Frodo offers the ring to Galadriel, and she speaks about perceiving the mind of Sauron and yet her mind her you know her, her 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 mind is shut and she does that thing where she holds up her hands in that gesture of defiance you know like she is she is from a distance stonewalling Sauron with her will um and you know so you have and the you know the land of Lothlórien is protected by more than just the slender arrows of elven bows there is a kind of you know it's not exactly like the girdle of melian the orcs can get in i mean they can cross the border which they can't do in doriath but <clears throat> but she has established a kind of girdle of protection that is at least reminiscent uh of 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 melian so yeah no clearly you can see the 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 fruits of this uh of this apprenticeship and and in its way you know it shows this this is this is the second time we've gotten Goadriel, and I think this second time helps to qualify that first time. The first time she just looks like she's one of the hotheads, you know. She's one of the, she's one. I mean, if if that were all we had of her, we'd have to put her on the pretty high on the sketchy list. That is, you know, of all of the, of all of the, you know, of course, Feanor and his sons are like. You know they they are the sketchy list, but you know of those who were kind of thinking like them and were with them and who therefore are potentially kind of themselves at risk. Galadriel is one of the top candidates. It speaks well of her, I think, that you know her sort of the first phase of her putting her I would like to have dominion over a realm plan into action is to uh, um, is to basically study under Melian, you know, and say okay this is if she if melian is goadriel's role model role model for how you rule a realm uh at your own will you know that's actually a really good role model and speaks pretty highly of goadriel and how she's uh how she's planning to go about this whole ruling a realm business um so uh so that that at least is comforting okay um well i think uh i think we are um Oh yeah, and Chris points out in the text here that this is why she wasn't allowed to return to Valinor after the end of the First Age because she hadn't really, she hadn't really yet fully repented. She had, you know, she she does, although she's going about it in a comparatively admirable fashion. Um, she still has that kind of resonant with Feanor um, outlook. She hasn't totally given it up, um, and so she she doesn't return it's among the reasons she, she doesn't return now Tolkien kind of wavered over the course of his life as to whether or not she had been forbidden to return or had she just chosen not to return but uh but certainly her non-returning um her 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 plan her goal her dream is isn't going to uh come to fruition really until god you know in the second age and then through the third age um when she finally sets up her own realm and really has her own shop um and then of course this is why for her the refusal of the ring of power is the the the, the final culmination of her of her turning away from it okay well i think that's we're coming to the end of our time here tonight that was uh that was good that was a fun discussion tonight uh, any last final comments or thoughts
1: yeah we've decided and by we i mean me that everybody should turn their microphones on and say hell caraxa to end our <laughs> seminar each week. All right. Helcaraxa. <laughs>
0: Helcaraxa. Helcaraxa. Yeah, I'll see you guys. Helcaraxa. <laughs> Good night. Godspeed.
1: That's all for this episode of the Silmarillion seminar. Join us next time when we discuss chapter 16 of the Quintus Silmarillion of Myglin.
0: Thanks for listening and Godspeed.